welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. of the evening, and uh, we are going to be looking at the proof of the Trinity in the New Testament. And um, this is actually the first of two lectures on the, uh, the Trinity from the New Testament. And what I want to do today is, is as I mentioned, talk about proofs of, uh, of the Trinity. And then next time, which will be the first lecture next week, uh, we will consider more of the implications of the doctrine of the Trinity, maybe some, some of the more of the interrelational aspects of the Trinity, uh, and perhaps with a special emphasis on the book of John, which is so useful, uh, so deep, so helpful in understanding the nature of our triune God. So as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what do we find in terms of a proof of the doctrine of the Trinity. And as I finished my last lecture, speaking about this uh, hour-long conversation that I had with a fellow, I, some of these passages that I'll be uh, bringing to your attention today are ones that I use to try to demonstrate to him that, uh, that there is a triunity of God, that, uh, as, that Jesus Christ is God himself. So uh, I want to offer, uh, first of all, what are the Trinitarian proofs that, that consider the Trinity as three within the New Testament? So let me mention, uh, let me mention three under this first kind of heading. All right, so Trinitarian proofs. Um, the first is the baptismal formula that I have alluded to uh, already in the, sub, in, in the prior lectures. And we find that, of course, in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. You are probably familiar with that passage. We call this the great commandment. 
Well, we read that Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the singular name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, there are some other things that we could mine in this passage concerning the Trinity. Our main uh, point or consideration at right now is simply the fact that it would be it would be so inappropriate, so misleading to place this ritual, if you will, this practice, this ordinance of baptism as, as that by which somebody enters into the, the life of the church or, and, and confesses that Jesus is their Lord, that they are saved, that they are a Christian, that they are of God. It would be so misleading, erroneous, uh, if at this point, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were each named, and yet one of them or two of them were, were, were not God, that they were unequal. And this is an extremely strong proof in and of itself, not to mention the fact that name here is singular. So here you've got one name, and you've got three names, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Very strong proof of the Trinity. And I know that there are those who, in uh, speaking about or writing upon the Trinity, will often start here. They'll often start here because they'll start with the fact that, listen, this was the experience of the saints. Even before, historically, they started to work out uh, you know, how to defend, for instance, the divinity of Christ, or how to conceive of the relations between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, you start with the fact that, hey, listen, we have been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is experiential. This is historical. This is the, the practice of the saints. Uh, we also see something, um, a, a Trinitarian view of God uh, in Jesus' baptism. And if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, we see this. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Here, of course, it, it's not as clear as the baptismal formula, but you have all three persons um, operative, or you have three agents all uh, working together in the baptism of the Lord Jesus, uh, a very crucial, monumental event in the life of our Lord and Savior. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we'll come back to this passage because this is, is fascinating that here you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit being the one who comes from the Father upon the Son. And one of the reasons this is interesting is because this is not the processional triad I know that, that's, that sounds like a mouthful, but what I simply mean is the normative way that we order the Trinity by means of how they have their being. Normally, we say what? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But here you've got 
the Holy Spirit from the Father coming upon the Son. We're going to come back to that because I think that that is significant. And there have been some historical theologians that have touched on that, teased out some things that I think are, are worth considering. So, you know, for a couple of weeks, you can just sit and ponder that and why that might be particularly significant. But for now, we see all three persons of the Trinity uh, co-working in this monumental event in the life of Christ. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, what I want you to see now is some explicit Trinitarian triads. Now, uh, this, this level of proof does not, uh, you know, does not prove the Trinity in, you know, in a simple ways, but what we see is that, in this case, the Apostle Paul thought in Trinitarian terms, in the sense that things are constantly being interwoven and co-inhering in the, the three persons as he speaks about the work of God. So you have a, you have a hint uh, of this in Ephesians 1 verse 3, but I want you really to look down with me at Ephesians 1 17. There we read that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. There you've got the three persons side by side, all working together for us in our redemption. Um, turn to Ephesians 2, 18. And I'm, I'm skipping over some. There's, there's other things we could pull out of, out of Ephesians. But Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then look down with me to Ephesians 2, verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there are many examples of this. There's, there are a couple other examples, maybe not quite as explicit in the book of Ephesians itself. Uh, but there are other examples in other books of kind of Trinitarian triads um, working, working together. Let's, let's look at at least one of them. Uh, turn with me to Acts 1 verse 4. Acts 1 verse 4. Here it says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So again, three persons uh, within God, all working together. So that's, uh, that's one level of proof that the Trinitarian actions or context in which we find scripture. Um, now let's move to the, the persons themselves and let's consider the proofs of the divinity of Christ. All right. Now, this it's important. Let's just step back a little bit before we get into some of these proofs. That as we come from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and as we see in history, and even those who do not believe in the Trinity have to wrestle with this, because it's very clear from, from history that Jesus was a, he was a real person that walked this earth roughly 2,000 years ago. What you have is you've got, there is no doubt that you have a person in Jesus Christ, 
Jesus who is called the Christ, at the very least you would say. And the question then that you have to wrestle with is, is this person, there's no doubt he's a person, is he God? Now, it's interesting that you have a different question when it comes to proving that the Holy Spirit is God or that he is one of the three persons of the Trinity. In fact, in the Old Testament, it's quite clear that the Spirit of God is, is God. The, the, the question is, is he distinct or is he simply just a way in which God works, kind of an extension of God, the influence of God, the power of God? Uh, is he a mere analogy, um, a mere metaphor? So when you get to the New Testament, in order to prove the Trinity, you have to prove the divinity of Christ because his personality is assumed. But you have to prove the personality of the Holy Spirit because his divinity is already assumed. Make sense? All right. So whether or not we'll get to the uh, personality of the Holy Spirit, we can do that relatively quickly. Um, I want to start with the proofs of the divinity of Christ. This is crucial. The first set uh, or category of proofs of the divinity of Christ is passages that speak of the of unity with the Father or with God. Um, so, for instance, in this category, we would place John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right, so here you've got a distinction between the word and God, but then you have an equivocation as well. You've got a, a unifying factor. You've got an identifying factor. The word was God. Um, now, the, it's interesting by way of just an apologetic note, the Jehovah's Witnesses will often try to point out that there's no definite article here when it says, and the word was God. They would want to um, translate that as, and the word was a God, because there's no definite article, the, you couldn't translate it, and the, well, you, you could, but uh, they're saying you shouldn't translate it, and the word was the God. But uh, those who have, who, who know Greek grammar, um, like, well, Robert Lethem says this, let me just quote what he says. When nominative predicate nouns precede the verb, as is the case here, they normally lack the de de definite article. The issue is one of Greek syntax. All right. In other words, the Jehovah's Witnesses are, are essentially out to lunch on their, on their Greek syntax, that, that they're, they're trying to prove something that you just cannot prove from the lack of an article here. Uh, but also in this category is John 1.18, which is probably clearer even than John 1, 1, which says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So here we've got the fact that, first of all, you're saying no one has ever seen God. So you presume that the Father is being spoken of here and, and, and is being spoken of. But then the same word is used to say the only God. And again, you would think, okay, it's, it's talking father is the only God. And then it says, who is at the father's side, he has made him known. So very strong proof here of the divinity of Christ called the only God. Um, in Romans 9, 5, it says to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. 
And then in Titus 2.13, it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is some, I understand, some question about whether that sentence could be um, interpreted or translated a little bit differently. But my understanding is that, that when it talks about our great God and Savior, it's speaking of Jesus Christ. Uh, so you've got passages that speak of uh, the Lord Jesus being one with God, being uh, identified with God, but you've also got places where he is identified with the Father. So for instance, turn with me to John 10, 30. John 10, 30. Maybe I'll uh, read from verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. I mean, even there, you've got the fact that the Lord Jesus is giving them eternal life and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Now, you know, it's useful to have a, an illustration right at hand from my conversation today, <laughs> but I pointed out this verse and, uh, and, and I said, well, you understand that not only does he say, I and the Father are one, but if you keep reading, the Jews who heard him, who understood the language in which he was speaking, immediately picked up stones to stone him because they understood what he was saying as blasphemy. And there are, there are other places, too, where it's very clear that the Jews responded to something that Jesus had said in, in identifying himself with God and a variety of ways in which he did that, in which they believe he had committed blasphemy. Well, it would be blasphemy, except he is God. And so you've got this identification of the Son with the Father, that they are, in some sense, at the very least, one. So... You've got this, these, these unifying remarks. Uh, another clear one is in John 14. Uh, I love this one. Philip comes, or Jesus is speaking to, to Philip and the other disciples uh, just a little bit before his passion and his death. And um, it's right after Jesus says, I have the way, the truth, and the life. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Uh, Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So you've got statements of unity of Christ, not only with God, but with the Father in particular. Uh, the other uh, proof that would fall under this heading is that you've got multiple passages in the New Testament that identify the God of the Old Testament has Jesus. That's interesting. So uh, one of the clearest ones is in, or at least one of the most significant ones. Is it clear? Uh, I mean, it's, it's clear as far as proof. Uh, I'll, I'll say a few things perhaps more about it. But in John 8, 58, Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Well, that's really bad. The grammar uh, but, uh, but Jesus is referencing the name of God, and it is, um, it's interesting. There's, there's debate about 
what he is referencing because it is frequent for theologians to say, well, he's referencing Exodus 3.14, where God says, I am that I am. He reveals himself in his name, the Tetragrammaton, uh, Yahweh. I don't tend to use that, that name. I tend to do what the apostles do, which is to use the name the Lord. But um, that's fine. If, if you have a different practice, that's, uh, that's not problematic for me. That's just my, my preference. But uh, it's also, and I think probably slightly more likely, that, um, that he's referencing Exodus 3 only by way of the statements in Isaiah, which where, um, where the statement is, I am he. That's the, that's the uh, translation in the, uh, in the English that we have. Um, but it's, it's ego a me. I, I'm actually not certain of the, the Greek pronunciation. Um, but, uh, and it's, so it's this, I am he. So where you see in, in the book of Isaiah, I am he, that's a statement that goes back to Exodus 3. And so whether or not Jesus is referring directly to Exodus 3 or indirectly, I think that's probably the case. It is a statement of his divinity. The Old Testament God is Christ. Also in John 12, 41, uh, it said, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So where, when Isaiah saw God and, and, you know, and, and the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the train of his robe filled the temple and he cried out and, you know, woe, woe is me. Um, you know, I, I, I have unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. What, the, what John is saying, the apostle John, is that he actually saw Jesus. Jesus. Uh, there are some other passages that would fall under this category as well. Some of the passages in Hebrews chapter 1 would fall under this category. Uh, but let's go move on to the next uh, category, which is um, proofs that have to do with processional equality. Processional equality. So procession, again, is the fact that some of the... Uh, well, namely two of the divine persons are from at least one other divine person. We'll get into that in, in dogmatics as far as how what the best way is of uh, speaking about that. But Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So there you've got an, a, a predication of the fact that one is of the other. But the way in which it is framed makes, makes it very clear that it's a fullness that is from. All right? There's no diminution. There's no lessening in that procession. Similar is Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. Even Philippians 2.6 could, could fall into this category. Though he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, so you've got this, these statements of processional equality. The third category of proofs of Christ's divinity are the titles that are used of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And the first one is that we ought to consider as Lord. Um, and again, this is, you have this confession uh, John 10 verse nine, for instance, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Um, similar passage is 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, which says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. And when you put both these passages together, something emerges about the confession that Jesus is Lord, and that is that it is picking up on the language of the Old Testament profession of the one God. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you have this profession. Deuteronomy 6, you should know this, hopefully, is a crucial passage in the Old Testament. It contains the Shema, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, thy, the Lord is one. That's the confession. And then it has this you know, statement that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And then it talks about teaching your children, passing that, that belief down. Uh, so, but the way 1 Corinthians 8, 6 is framed and its connection to the general confession that Jesus is Lord would help us to understand that the new confession of the church is that Jesus is Lord. He's the, he's the one Lord. Uh, and so this, this idea of Lord is picked up from the Old Testament. Now, even the word itself, uh, which is the Greek word kurios, um, it's, it's the Greek for the tetragrammaton in the Old Testament. So that, those four letters, uh, which, you know, people pronounce Yahweh. I, you know, we don't know for certain that's the way it was pronounced, but that's our sort of our best guess. That is translated as Lord, and the apostles use that word Lord of Jesus. Um, and, and there's a couple passages that actually are very clear in how it references this. So, for instance, um, in Acts 2.21, in Romans 10.12-13, it quotes the prophet Joel, where it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, who's it referring to? Referring to Jesus. But it's quoting from the Old Testament and from the Lord of the Old Testament. So this word Lord, why is this important? Well, uh, to, to, to make these distinctions. Well, because the word Lord doesn't always have a divine connotation to it. It can mean master as well. Uh, and so, but, but it's important for us to see this theme or this aspect, this perspective of it meaning God uh, as a proof. Uh, moreover, the, one of the clearest confessions of Jesus Christ as Lord, it doesn't start with kind of the Apostle Paul. It actually starts in the book of John, where John the Baptist calls Jesus Lord, and Nathaniel calls Jesus Lord, and Martha calls Jesus Lord, and John himself, in John 20, verse 31, his purpose statement of the entire book, that you may know and believe in the Lord. Um, here, maybe I'll just quickly reference that, so I say that correctly. Um, it says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm going to Son of God. Oh, it's a good thing I looked at that, correct myself in the middle of my, uh, of my lecture. <laughs> so that is actually the next, um, uh, the next set of, uh, of proofs. And I kind of bled one into the other. You'll forgive me for that, please. But that is the idea of Jesus being the Son of God. What does that mean? Well, it means in claiming that he was the Son of God, that in fact, he was God and from God. Both are true. And in fact, in Matthew 26, verse 63, we read that 
Jesus is before the high priest, and the high priest challenges him, saying, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Interesting that he puts Christ and Son of God side by side. All right? Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. And similarly, in John 5.18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then I mentioned, uh, erroneously, I, I mentioned also those other, um, John the Baptist, Nathaniel, Martha, John himself, calling Jesus the son of God. That's kind of the confession. Um, and of course, Peter in other places as well. So you've got this, you've got these, uh, these titles and, and there's, and there's more too, but Lord and son of God are probably the, the, the two clearest in regards to Christ's divinity. But even if you had none of that, all right, even if you had none of those clear passages, I and the father are one, uh, you didn't have the Jews, you know, uh, wanting to, you know, saying he's blaspheming by calling himself, you know, the son of God or these statements that he is the old Testament God, you would still have all those passages in the New Testament that describe Jesus as doing things only God does. Who forgives sin, but God alone. And what are you doing, Jesus? You, you're doing, you, can't do, you can't do that. Only God does that. No, Jesus does that because he's God. He sustains creation. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Um, we see this too in regards to the Sabbath in John 5, where Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There was this tradition that... Um, in understanding the laws of God, that God the Father wasn't breaking the Sabbath because he was above, and I think this is, there's a certain sense in which this is absolutely true, he's above the laws that he gives for us. And so Jesus, by claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, you know, my Father is working and I'm working. What's he claiming? He's claiming to be above and on the same level with God the Father. I'm, a, I'm a, essentially... You want to be careful with this statement because Jesus actually did not break the law of God, but he's, he's you could say that he is saying I'm allowed to break the law because I'm, I'm God, or at least you could say he's, he's above the giving of the law, right? Take, take what I said there with a grain of salt because Jesus did obey the law. He obeyed it perfectly on our behalf, but he claims the, prerog the prerogatives of God in relationship to the law. Um, we see that, that uh, Jesus gives life for as the father raises the dead and gives them life. So also the son gives life to whom he will. That's John 5, 21. And then in the next verse, uh, it talks about him being given authority to execute judgment. Uh, and so Jesus forgives sin. He sustains creation. He gives life. He judges. And then Hebrews 1, 6, and this is one of my favorite Proofs. Uh, is it, you know, is it the best proof? I don't know. It's one of my favorites, though. Uh, it says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. 
So God, the father is saying to the angels, you need to worship my son. But in the old Testament, we're told very clearly in, in the 10 commandments that you worship God alone, God alone, but you're supposed to worship Jesus. And in fact, in my conversation today, I, I pressed this home on, on this fellow and, uh, and I asked him like, you understand that what you're saying is that it's, is that idolatry is okay. If Jesus is a creature and you're saying he is, and you're saying God says to worship him, you're, you're breaking God's fundamental commandment about, about idolatry. Um, and then in Acts chapter seven, we see that Stephen prays to Jesus. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then again, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So we have clear proofs, you know, even if you were to take one of these categories, let alone all of them, you would have a, a very strong case for the divinity of Christ altogether. Uh, it is, it is just uh, insurmountable as far as proof that Jesus Christ, this historical person that walked amongst the apostles, who did great miracles, who cast out demons, who then died under Pontius Pilate and was claimed to have risen again that he is God. And this is why he was able to rise. I have authority to lay down my life. I have authority to take it up again. Well, I think we do have time to just take maybe an extra couple minutes and talk about the personality of the Holy Spirit. I don't think this will take very long, but I have two categories here under the personality of the Holy Spirit. The first is masculine pronouns. So in John 14, 26, it says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, my, my preferred translation of that word, uh, which is um, translated helper, is actually advocate, but, but we'll go with helper for now. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, in the next verse, because it's referencing the Holy, the, the spirit again, it goes, it goes on to actually use the neutral pr pronoun. Um, and so somebody, here's an interesting question. Are you allowed to use the word it of the spirit of God? Well, the answer biblically is you may. All right. Um, but if you do understand that, you know, you don't, you understand that the Holy spirit still is a person. All right. Um, my preference would be to, to try to use um, pronouns, personal pronouns of the Holy Spirit. But uh, I think that biblically, you may. There's, there's evidence for that. Um, but the fact that there are pronouns, masculine pronouns used of the Holy Spirit, uh, and there are other examples, John 15, John 6, um, really do indicate that the Holy Spirit is a person and not just kind of an, um, a force of God, an influence of God, or a power of God. Um, but probably the, the larger proof is the personal work or characteristics of the Holy Spirit. So for instance, I'm just going to go through these really, really quickly, but the Holy Spirit teaches John 14, 26, Luke 12, 12, the Holy Spirit bears witness John 15, 26, Romans 8, 16, the Holy Spirit either permits or refuses Acts 16, 7, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. 
He can be grieved, just like in the Old Testament, again in Ephesians 4.30. He speaks, Acts 8.29, Acts 13.2. He gives life, Romans 8.11, and he searches, 2 Corinthians 2.10-11. Now, when we get into the, um, the history of the doctrine of the Trinity, we may come back to the Holy Spirit um, a little more and, and kind of tease out some of the some of the dialogue, some of the challenges within the early church to really define the Holy Spirit in terms of being fully God. Uh, that did not that did not happen in right away in in or quite as quickly as with the Son. Uh, and there were some early theologians that kind of. Um, I'll kind of equivocated about it, um, but very, but within a very short period of time, they realize you start to start to put all these things together, and you realize very clearly that the Holy Spirit is a distinct personality, but also fully God, not a lesser God, fully God. So that's the groundwork for the doctrine of the Trinity: Old Testament and New Testament. And again, as I mentioned. This is building the, the, the foundation and the groundwork for, um, Lord willing, next lecture will be on uh, a little bit of a closer look at the interrelations of the Trinity in the New Testament, probably a particular focus on the book of John, and to tease out some of the application for that and the kind of language that the Bible uses to refer to either the unity of God or the distinct personalities of God. Thank you for listening to the Joshua Lectures, an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. If you'd like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. If you would like to participate in person, you are most welcome to come and join us.